Welcome to Evidence-Based, a new Harbinger psychology podcast. I'm your host, Cassie Stossel. On today's episode, we're talking about critical, demanding, and dysfunctional parents. Our guest is Dr. David M. Allen, author of Coping with Critical, Demanding, and Dysfunctional Parents. David is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and former Director of Psychiatric Residency Training at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis, Tennessee. He is also author of the book, How Dysfunctional Families Spur Mental Disorders. He has carried out research on personality disorders, is a psychotherapy theorist, and is former associate editor of the Journal of Psychotherapy Integration. He's also author of three other books for psychotherapists, as well as numerous journal articles and book chapters. Hi, David. Thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. So I thought we could start off by identifying the parent type that we're going to talk about today. Can you talk about what a critical, demanding, and dysfunctional parent looks like? Well, there's a lot that covers a lot of ground. We're not talking about severe sexual or physical abuse, even though a lot of the strategies that are in the book would work on those people, but they're much more difficult to employ, and someone would need a therapist, I think, help (laughs) do that, even though a lot of therapists don't know how to deal with a lot of this stuff either, because there's a lot of different schools of therapy, and uh, it seems that... Lately, it's all in your head. It's got nothing to do with the people around you. And to me, that's kind of complete nonsense. Family Systems was big in the in the 80s and 90s, but kind of fell out of favor. It's politically incorrect, and the pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies don't like it because it takes more time, and you're not prescribing as many drugs and that sort of a thing. But basically, there's four categories of, of parents that uh, I discussed in the book, even though it mentions only three. An invalidating uh, parent... Uh, is somebody who's constantly telling you that you're going to do badly, uh, you can't take care of yourself, they're checking in on you every five seconds, they accuse you of being oversensitive if you complain, they take credit for everything you do but then avoid you, uh, and that sort of a thing. So it feels like you're a nobody. And this is a a big thing lately. You've heard about helicopter parents as adolescents, but a lot of times it doesn't stop there. Um, they're constant. I've, I've had patients where the mother's calling them every 10 minutes to check in on them. Basically, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but only only a little bit. Like, yeah. they can't do anything right. And the parents come in and take over. And uh, that's really bad because it makes you feel like you're nobody and can't do anything. Okay, the second group is a constantly critical one. And I'm sure people can uh, relate to, you know, you're not doing well enough. They don't like your choices of careers or spouses. They... Uh, think you're doing everything wrong and they're obsessed with it and they're nagging you about well, you should get married already when are you going to have grandchildren and all that to the point where it's really super frequent not, i'm not talking about just occasionally when i'm talking about this stuff it's like constant <laughs> if it's just occasionally you can just establish boundaries and do what other books tell you to do and it works just fine but if it's going on over and over again despite how you react that means it's uh, something that needs more attention a third category is they make unreasonable demands on you uh, they want either you to give them money or they're constantly giving you money because you can't handle it. Uh, they want to hang out with your friends and, or one parent will complain about the other and put you in the middle. Uh, that's another big one. And when you help, it's never quite you know good enough. <laughs> so you, you got to help mom fix this thing and you run over there and you do it and then she doesn't like the way you do it and she redoes the whole thing all over again, that kind of thing. And the last one is, is a little bit more severe, sort of hateful behaviors where they're gossiping about you behind your siblings' back and them about to you, giving you unwanted gifts, spreading rumors around you, 
another big one is uh, they don't pay attention to you because you're doing well, but uh, your brother or sister is living downstairs in a basement playing video games all night, and they're kind of enabling them, and uh, they get all the attention and you don't. I say it's hateful, and it is, but what people don't realize is that if somebody does that, they kind of know that you're not going to like it. How could they not? There's another presumption in the field that people are just in- incredibly stupid. Yes, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you can't do the same thing over and over and over again and expect a different result. So why would they make you be angry with them? Well, they're pushing you away. It's called distancing. They really think secretly, and nobody believes when I say this until we get into it, that they think you're better off without them. But they can't. Uh, they can't actually say that because it interferes with what they're doing uh, in their families and their history. So they just push you away thinking you can do better without them. I mean, I've even had a patient where the brother became sexually seductive whenever he was too close. And of course, he didn't bite, but it was like, ew, you know, go away. Is that, uh, is that conscious on the parents' part? That's an interesting question. We could talk the whole hour about that. It's basically <laughs> 80% of what we do, according to this one uh, neuroscientist on PBS, is done automatically in response to environmental cues and doesn't require any conscious thought whatsoever. So they're doing it and they're just responding to cues and they're not really thinking about why they're doing it. But deep down, yes, they do. And they won't even tell a therapist, by the way. I don't know why they're even therapists, but most people think, seem to think that they're going to, uh, especially psychology researchers, that people are going to blurt out the things that are they're most ashamed of. Or No, people lie about that stuff all the time. So you can't go with the first thing they tell you. You've got to listen for holes in the story and logical fallacies and stuff like that to realize, wait a minute, there must be more to it. And you can't accuse them of trying to you know, deceive you. Um, so you have to and this is one of the techniques I, I talk about where I can teach patients to do that with their, with their parents. It's, it's called in the field the Columbo style of questioning after this detective in this TV show who would act stupid and get people to confess to crimes. Mm. <laughs> you put all the stupidity on you, basically, and you go, yeah, you know, I know you know what's going on and you don't seem any happier about it than I. You must have a really good reason for doing that. Or, or help me out here. I can't, I can't figure out this. <laughs> I love that. So a lot of books out there talk about divorcing yourself from these types of parents or, you know, the old advice, just set those boundaries. Can you talk about what the downside of doing this is? Well, with these kind of families where it's over and over and over again, setting boundaries just doesn't work. They have defenses in which they'll throw at you to throw you off of track and then leaving you feeling totally helpless. So just setting boundaries in, in, again, in mild cases where it's not repetitive and it's not a severe family issue, yeah, that works just fine. Now, as far as cutting off somebody who's driving you crazy, there's actually three choices. Uh, the worst choice, I think, is putting up with it. Okay. The second best choice is cutting them off. But there's a third choice, which is getting them to stop doing it. Now, you can't fix your parent in that sense, but you do have the power, believe it or not, nobody believes me when I tell them this, you do have the power to fix the relationship between you and one parent at a time. When there's two parents in the same room, you're, you're going you're gonna to fail because they're just going to throw all kinds of stuff at you. But if you can't, if you don't know how to do it, and again, I, I think this book can give you a lot of ideas as to how to go about doing this, you can get to the point where you get past their defenses and they have more than one. So if you get past one, there's another one behind it. Like, uh, there's like four different types of denial. They can deny it ever happened. They can deny it was a big deal. They can deny they weren't responsible because they were drunk. And they can deny it because it shouldn't bother you this much. You know? So they may throw one 
after the other after the other. Now, as far as your question is concerned, why why would you go to the? Well, there's I think th three big reasons for this. Okay, uh, the first reason is even though people you know brag about having done this and say it was the right choice, they really down deep don't feel that way. They really feel like there's a hole in their life and they feel bad about it. Now that you can live, uh, but it can be very depressing. So um, the second biggest problem though is you carry your parents around with you in your head. You can't get them out. I'm I'm sure you've experienced like doing something that your parents disapprove of. That you <laughs> when you hear these old tapes running around in the back of your head, you can't get rid of those. Now, there's something called acceptance and commitment uh, therapy where you're supposed to not believe everything you think, but it's not that easy to do when these things are very well ingrained. And the third reason is it's a family issue, and if you have kids, there's a big risk that you're going to pass down these problems to your kids. And, you know, I've had uh, people say they don't want to have kids because they know that would happen. If you want to have kids, it's a good idea to try and get these things worked out. But if you can't get the help you need or uh, it's more difficult than you thought it was going to be, then sure, cutting them off is better than continuing to put up with it. Sure. And I want to ask a follow-up to something you mentioned about repairing if there's one parent in the room. How common is it to have two of these parents in your life? Do they tend to attract each other? Is that something you see a lot? Absolutely. They know that people that have the same conflicts, inner conflicts that they do, they can find each other across a crowded room. I, I, I don't know how they do it. I mean, the obvious example is uh, a woman that marries one alcoholic after another, and you say, where do you meet guys? And they go, at bars. And you go, oh, I, you know, that's the obvious thing. But it's much simpler. You're on the same wavelength. And this is something that's very difficult to understand, is they each have a role that they're playing with their dysfunctional parents, and everybody is conflicted over the same problems. So they're really kind of helping each other play that role. So that's why they keep doing the same thing over and over again, because they need that support. It's sort of like mutual enabling, if that makes sense. Gender issues is a real big one. If you come from a family where women are supposed to be uh, mothers and nothing else, you've got to find a guy that keeps putting you down so that's all you feel like doing, even though you're miserable doing it. And they say they don't really realize they're doing it, but that's nonsense. Again, people aren't that stupid. Uh, they can see, you know, the, the example that family systems people used to give is the alcoholic husband and the nagging wife. And she would say, I nag because he drinks. And he would say, I drink because I nag. And duh. Uh, but then they know that already and they keep doing it anyways. They're not that stupid. You know, after the first or second time, maybe they didn't catch it. But it happens over, and they're telling each other that that's what's happening. So how can, how can you possibly think that they're that stupid? I mean, I call that the problem of stupidity in the, in the field of psychotherapy. Whereas you just assume that people are complete morons because they act like it. But people act stupid all the time. Look what's going on in politics, and you might get a feeling for that. Uh, something called willful blindness, where certain things are happening, and you, you kind of have to have looked at one point because you have to know where the things are that you're not supposed to look at. But then you don't look at them, and you're happy in the, in the knowledge, but you're not really happy. You're all miserable. Everybody in the family is unhappy. That's why this is so crazy. Everybody's feeding into each other's nut craziness, but they don't know how to stop. And if they do, bad things start to happen. Parents start to threaten divorce, or uh, people that drink start drinking more. Or I mean, in, in really severe families, it can get really Herring. Another thing that happens if you stop playing this role for everybody is your whole family comes down on you and says, how can you treat your mother that way? And, you know, if you think a therapist has more power than the whole family coming down and telling you that and blaming you, 
I found that I was no match. And it's like the, I'm sure you've heard the saying of everybody who's in therapy is in therapy because someone in their life wouldn't go to therapy. Yeah. (laughs) This also means that, and I go into this in the book, before you do the parents, you've got to discuss this with your spouse. Because if you suddenly stop doing what they seem to need you to do, they're going to feel betrayed because they always thought you were going to say, and they probably have to do the same thing with, with their family. So it gets really complicated and siblings might get in the way. So there's strategies for, I call detriangulating them, getting them out of the triangle. So it's just you and the one uh, parent, or you may have trouble getting a parent alone. You know, they always want to bring the hubby along. So you got to come up with some strategies for uh, doing that. So what I'm recommending here in my book is not easy. If you're looking for a quick, simple solution, it just isn't going to happen. These problems are way too complicated. That's another reason that therapists aren't doing it because the insurance companies don't want to pay for long-term therapy anymore. Right. But you can't solve this in one session, you know. And so the kind of the first step of beginning to change this dynamic is understanding why your parent is behaving this way. Can you talk about why that is that first step? Okay, well, the whole way to get patients to get past their parents' defensive is for them to develop empathy for their parents, which means not that they agree with what their parents are doing, that's sympathy. Empathy means you can kind of understand why they feel the need to act that way, but you don't approve of it. Okay, in order to get past people's defenses, you've got to be empathic with them, or they get defensive back, and they start attacking or withdrawing. It's fight or flight, basically. But if somebody's kicking you in the knee constantly, it's kind of hard to be empathic with them as they do that. So if you knew why they were doing it, you can sort of step back a ways and, and kind of view it more passionlessly, if you want to uh, call it that. So that was a uh, family systems ther- theorist named Murray Bowen, and my model is based on a, a criticism of the Bowen model. But he started looking at how these patterns develop over three or four generations. And that's called a genogram. So in order to understand your parents, you have to understand the historical context of which your family was operating, when they immigrated to the United States, what their traditional culture was like, if they had a traditional culture, as opposed to what the new culture is like, uh, what traumas they've been through. And there's a great book called Ethnicity and Family Therapy, where you can actually find out about the typical family patterns and rules of the road for the culture that you came from. And you can see how changes in what went on led to people to have conflicts over how do they behave. They like to fit in with the new culture, but they have this nagging thing in the back of their head that they're not supposed to do that, and that affects how they handle their children. Like Again, gender issues is a good example. Like A common example is that the, uh, the mother will kind of push her daughter to do well in school and go, but when she does too well, the mom starts to get depressed, and then she starts to say, you know, you're going to end up an old maid. No, men don't like smart women. And, and the woman's going, what the heck? Or you're going to ruin your children. They're listening to, like, Phyllis Schlafly, if you know who she is. She was an old conservative. She's passed away, but she was talking about how women had to be there you know, because their kids are going to be ruined, when, in fact, if, if you overdo that, that's going to be bad. In fact, uh, working women often spend more time with their kids than uh, mothers did when I grew up in the 50s, where they were all home, but the kids were all playing in the street. You don't see that anymore. So that's a double message. Okay. So, but you can see that she kind of had ambition, but she couldn't express it. So she, she kind of gets vicarious energy from watching you do it. But then if you're too successful, guess what happens? It reminds her that she didn't get to do it. Uh, I call it the Rosie the Riveter phenomenon because 
in my generation, our mothers were the Rosie the Riveter generation. When everybody went, to, all the men went to war, and the women got a taste of what it's like to have a career and be lauded for it and uh, all the camaraderie and everything. And then after the war, and this is true, I've seen these films. They're unbelievable. The government issued these propaganda films. The basic message was, nice job, girls, but it's time to go back and get barefoot and pregnant again. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. That's why I'm here. That's what happened with the baby boom generation. But, you, but if somebody was bright and ambitious, guess what they had to do? They had to push that out. Mm-hmm. And that causes them to give mixed messages to their daughters who then are going, I can't win. Right. If I do one thing, she's unhappy. If I do the opposite, it's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And you always have a choice. And that three generations thing, is there anything about why it takes that long to pass down? Or is it a lack of self-awareness that makes you continue to sort of pass those traits on? Or, you know, what is it about the three years? Well, that's a complication. It's, again, a very complicated subject. But the, the rules of the road have been changing at a rapid pace in our culture. It's, I mean, it's basically been happening since the Industrial Revolution. But now it's really going fast. Mm-hmm. I mean, my kids do things on computers that I'm, you know, way over my tolerance or things I want to do. <laughs> uh, and women are suddenly the feminist movement. The daughters of the Rosie the Riveters grew up and came of age during the feminist movement in the 60s. So you can imagine how that would have. But that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. The culture is changing. The rules have freed up to allow more individual freedom to do whatever you want and less role-driven behavior, but families can't keep up with that all the time, especially if they've had some kind of a trauma. Right. That makes sense. It's called cultural lag by anthropologists that they, the old rules of how we operate as a family don't, don't work anymore, but we can't give them up. Yeah. Well, that's why this work seems to be important because the, like you said, the culture is constantly shifting. So things are going to continue to be different. So if, if you're struggling with this type of parent and you don't, you know, break the cycle, It'll just keep going. And it doesn't take much contact with them to do that. They're actually cells in the fight or flight part of the brain that respond only to your parents and nothing else. That's what I was saying earlier. I was no match as a therapist for a lot of the people that are cut off are still not really completely cut off. They're they're communicating through what I call the switchboard or a third relative that's kind of going messages. And even that is really powerful. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And people don't want to cut off everybody in their whole family. I mean, it's... Right. I mean, you don't want to be isolated from your entire family. Right. So it's really a difficult bind to, to be in. But unfortunately, if there was an easy solution to it, uh, you know, I'd be the first to recommend it. I'd, you know, I'd be a multimillionaire telling people how to do it. But um, no, it's really difficult. And even even when you practice the strategies, by the way, hopefully you have a significant other you can do that with, uh, before you actually do it, it's still scary as hell to go try and try and do it. People will go to all kinds of lengths to avoid doing their homework, even after they see exactly how to do it and think it's going to work and practice it. They're still scared to death. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that avoidance is a real good uh, fallback for most people. <laughs> so you mentioned with the example of the daughters and mothers, uh, the conflicting feedback, right? The We want you to succeed, but not too much. Can you talk about how someone might begin to parse out that conflicting feedback a parent might give and how to figure out what like the logic is and what is the truth? Well, again, when you do the, the genogram, that's when you kind of find out what might be going on. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I, I'll give my own example with me. I mean, I'm a physician, and I got a lot of pressure to be a doctor from my mother, you know, traditional, why aren't you going to be a doctor kind of thing? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I never, never understood that. I mean, uh, my first choice, I could, it didn't work out, so going to medical school was kind of a second choice, but then I found psychiatry, and I was really happy with it. But uh, long after she died, uh, the husband of a cousin of mine mentioned, oh, her, her parents didn't even want her to finish high school when she came here. I go, oh, she wanted to be the doctor. Okay. Mm-hmm. She wanted to live through me. Okay. Uh, that's how you kind of, it's, it's an aha phenomenon. It's like, no wonder they act that way. I mean, I love to get that reaction from, yeah. from my therapy patients because the, the lights just go on. It, it's hard to describe. But again, if it's really complicated, you may need a therapist to kind of help. And sometimes these patterns go back too far and you can't trace them. They don't have the history or they came from a different country. Um, or it, uh, when you watch Finding Your Roots, the African-Americans locked at slavery because they didn't name them. You know, you mm-hmm. know, hard time to go further back. But you can come up with an educated guess and take it from there. And if your parents correct the guess and it makes sense, you have to say, oh, I, I misunderstood. In other words, you have to be able to admit to your part in all this because you do have a part. Yeah, I want to ask about that. So we've obviously talked about identifying the parents' behaviors, learning about the history of maybe where that comes from. Can we talk about how someone might begin to identify their own responses to to all this messaging they're getting from their parent? Well, it's real. It's fairly easy because you, you just start thinking about what's going on, and it kind of comes to you. But you, uh, but if you really want to know, I actually have a quiz in in the book that uh, rates whether you're getting double messages about things or not on eight different or eight or nine different domains like career versus family life or work versus play or dependence versus independence. And you can rate each parent separately. And there's two kinds of double messages. There's a neglect one where they don't mention it at all. And then there's two polarized ones where they're either over-involved or under-involved. So you can literally take this test to get a general idea of what you're getting. This is where I found out that uh, the patients that I treated were the ones with much more severe issues than what's addressed in the book. Uh, but when they have a reputation, these people that are diagnosed with something called borderline personality disorder of, quote, splitting, where they can't put good and bad images of people together at the same time. So you're either a god or you're a pile of crap, and there's nothing in between. Well, again, I, I had a hard time believing that because they're also known as the best manipulators there are. So, I mean, how can you manipulate people if you can't evaluate their strengths and weaknesses simultaneously. So uh, again, you have to you kind of look at what's going on in the family and then you start asking questions. That, and again, you have to interview family members to get this history. And that can be a problem. So you may have to practice strategies for doing that because people don't like to talk about this stuff a lot of the time. They can be induced to talk about it, but they don't like to. Uh, it's just amazing. People have been through incredible traumas and they don't tell their children about it at all. Like they had parents in a war. They don't talk about whether they had PTSD afterward, any of that stuff. So that the kid's just wondering, well, what made you like that? Because they, they won't talk about it. And, uh, you know, when you're a kid, you don't think to ask because you don't know uh, enough to ask. And also there seems to be an unwritten rule that you're not supposed to ask either because it makes people uncomfortable. So you really, so you got to get past the fences to even get uh, that. And again, I have strategies for doing that. There's a lot of it. Uh, in fact, I have one chapter that has 17 things they're going to throw at you and how to counter those. 
I was gonna say I totally feel the like the not asking and not telling like I have a great relationship with my dad like he doesn't fall into any of these categories but even still you know I'm in my mid-30s and he's like I could write a book of all the things about my childhood that you just don't even know like he just you know prefers not to talk about him and that you know that's such an interesting phenomenon of parents just either wanting to shelter their kids from that that negativity that they experienced or you know maybe themselves well there's also a shame factor sure kind of ashamed of what happened yeah that makes sense they're also protecting their parents by the way right oh yeah think bad about your grandparents yeah that's a good point in fact if they're telling you all the awful things that you're grandparents then they're probably exaggerating and you're going to catch on to that and you're not going to believe anything they tell you anyways yeah oh that's a good so point those are two reasons why they don't want to talk about it a they're ashamed of their part and b they don't want to all the fall on their parents so uh, another thing in therapy is that they'll come up with an explanation for self-destructive behavior and they'll say it stems from your relationship with your parents and the way they acted but that just kicks the question away to well, why are they acting that way right it doesn't answer anything yeah. How did this all get started? Did you grow up with an emotionally immature, unavailable, or selfish parent? Join Lindsay C. Gibson, author of the self-help hit Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, for a six-week intensive online course. You'll learn essential skills to reclaim your true self, build emotional resilience, and nurture healthy relationships. Sign up to learn more at newharbinger.com slash Gibson dash gift and receive a free excerpt bundle from Gibson's books. New Harbinger online courses, expert help for better mental health. So we've talked about the family history. You know, we, we have our hypothesis of why the behavior might be that way. Um, we're working on gaining a more empathic perspective. So how do we go about the actual preparing ourselves for the interaction with the parent? Well, I use role-playing a lot. So again, if your spouse is, and you are able to talk about this sort of stuff in both of your families, because otherwise people are just going to feel betrayed, but they can agree that's a problem, then you can try these strategies out. Your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend often knows your parents. They met them, so they kind of have a feel for what they're like, and they can kind of play what they think the parents might respond with. And if they're wrong, they, you can say, well, that, that makes sense, but that's not exactly what they would do. They would do this and then have them throw all these defenses at you and see if you can stay empathic and on message and deflect all these defenses one after the other until you get down to the real uh, real problem. So practice is, 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 is quite useful. Uh, if you have a friend and they know your parents a little bit, you can kind of clue them on and then you can try all these things. Um, and it's really easy to fall back into your own bad patterns and start accusing them of things or getting ticked off or how can you do this to me? And uh, to which the response is, well, what about what you're doing? You know, okay, yes. how, do you, how, do you, how do you deal with that? <laughs> okay, so there's strategies again, but they, they really do uh, need to be uh, practiced. I can give you a couple of a quick examples of kind of strategies. Okay, when they're playing stupid, you could say, you know, you know as well as I do. But I don't understand why you're doing that. You must have a good reason. Like I would use that one earlier because it's not making you happy. Or if they, the one I mentioned about uh, they're like trying to turn it around on blaming you. Well, guess what? You participated in the interaction. So you are partly to blame. Blame is kind of a whole other issue that I, it's not an issue of blaming. It's an issue of fixing things. Everybody's in the same soup. You're, when Bowen therapist said, you're all beans in the same soup. 
Well, who's to blame? Well, you know, they're doing it because their parents are doing it because of their parents. So I always say, well, let's just blame Adam and Eve and get it over with. You know, it's just not an issue of whose fault it is. So if you've been a part of it, you could say, well, you know, I, I, I do do that. But the reason I do that is because it looks to me like this is what you're kind of egging me on to do. And then you throw it back to them. Short is sweet. You want to make these as brief as possible because the minute you start getting into an argument, it starts going around in circles. Right. You got to not argue. Refuse to argue is another. If they say it did happen, it didn't happen, and neither of you knows whether it happened or not, then you got to go look and find out who's right and who's wrong, you know. But most of the time, at least one, both parties kind of know. I mean, we see this in abuse cases where the father's denying he ever sexually abused his kid. Come on, they know exactly what they did. Right. That's really stupid. That's, again, the more severe cases. Yeah. You need a therapist to get you through. But even in those cases, you can confront the parents in an empathic way. Confrontation has this kind of adversarial sure. tone. But it is, it's a confrontation, but it's confronting the problem, not the person. Yeah. I, I like that shifting of messaging, right? You're not confronting the person, the problem instead. If you have a parent that's easily inflamed or quick to yell do you have communication strategies for that besides like just trying to not engage in that argument well it depends again on the family i know one thing i should say that any strategy in the book may or may not work in your particular case right. it may backfire in fact so i can't tell you if your parent does this right. I can give you, options, you could try this and then we role play them to see what would happen and that's what i learned about the family dynamics because i wasn't taught as as a psychiatrist, especially who aren't even, most of them aren't even doing psychotherapy anymore. I was taught by the psychoanalysts mostly. The behaviorists were around and the cognitive therapists hadn't really taken, and they never ta- never told you to ask questions like, well, what does your mother-in-law think of what's going on with your daughter and stuff like that? I mean, we, we just, yeah. so when I started role-playing, this stuff came up and it was like, <laughs> like oh, no wonder you act that way. It's like, so, okay, so if they're yelling, one way I can say is, uh, yeah, I really appreciate it if you quit yelling. I really like to get this, I know we care about each other, so let, let's try and avoid that. But you got see that a tone of voice is another important thing. Not only have to be short and sweet, but you have to be kind but firm. The minute you start, why are you yelling at me? Guess what? It's a it's a it's yell. Done. Yeah, it's over. All over. Now there's a way to recover from that if you make a mistake, because you're going to make a mistake sooner or later. So there's strategies for what do you do when you made a mistake? Don't give up. It's fixable. Any error you make, you can go back and correct if you can come up with a good strategy for doing that. But if it, if it kind of goes into a shouting spree, it's time to leave the room. And then when everybody calms down, you go back and you bring it up again, because that's what it's designed to do from your parents. If they yell at you like that and you give up and walk away, they figure, well, you're not going to do that again. Well, they're going to be wrong. Yeah. Because <laughs> you are going to do it. And you're going to refer back to every time we try to talk about this thing, we get into a shouting match. How can we avoid that? This is really important, I think, for both of us. It's kind of hard to get mad at somebody who's saying it that way. They still can. They still can. But it's much more difficult. Yeah. So one thing that came up a few times when I was reading your book is understanding what's logical and why that's important. Can you talk about why parents might just use irrational arguments to throw you off track? And and how can you keep your logic straight when this is happening? Uh, again, a really good question. There, there's something called groupthink and there's individual thought. When we are following these rules, we're doing it without thought. Like I said, it's been rehearsed for a long time. 
and it's automatic, and we're not thinking about contradictions. So in order to avoid thinking certain things, I believe, and I'm kind of alone on this, that people have developed certain mental mechanisms for staying in the dark about these things. And one of them is, is to use logical fallacies on themselves. And there's something called family myths, for instance, which are based on, if this is true, then this must be true, and that's not, in fact, true. Uh, it may or may not be true. So there's all these kind of illogical things, and when I first learned about a friend of mine, a good friend of mine was a, a championship debater in, in college, and he would go over all these logical fallacies, and I just thought it was just people, you know, weren't as bright as maybe they should be or something like that. Only later did I realize that they have a purpose. One of the big fallacies is called a non sequitur, that this does not really logically follow from that. Like, well, why are you upset about this? You shouldn't be upset, you know, when, when you're in all this pain. Well, that, that doesn't make sense. And unfortunately, even therapists use this kind of stuff all the time. Like, like I said, I was trained by psychoanalysts, and they all want you to go into psychoanalysis. So I would say, yeah, but there's Jungian psychoanalysts and Freudians and this, that, and the other. And they go, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter? They don't think the same things? That doesn't follow. Well, you need to go into therapy to find out why uh, you're resistant to this. Well, that was three fallacies in one statement. They were doing something called begging the question. They were assuming what they were arguing for. You know, God must have said it because it's in the Bible, and we know that the Bible came from God because the Bible says so. You know, that kind <laughs> right. Of, yeah, that's you know, circular reasoning. Post hoc, assigning a cause and effect when that there could have been 20 other <laughs> causes. Worst case scenario is another big one. Like uh, families that you can't express anger. I, I once I was leading a group when I was a resident, and we, the topic of anger came up, and they all said, well, if I express it, we'll all be out murdering people and burning down government buildings and blah, blah. Okay. Probably <laughs> not. <laughs> Seems legit. <laughs> That doesn't follow. You could, there's other ways to handle anger other than beating people up. You know, it's just not. There's other things you can do with that. You can use it to motivate yourself to solve the problem, for instance, which would be nice, and come up with good ways to do that. So anger can be very useful, but you'd never know that coming from some of these families. My God, if you let a swear word out, my God, you, you know, you're going straight to you know Hades with no no chance for any you know. So those are the kind of things that that, that they'll kind of throw at you. Uh, so if you're familiar with some of these logical fallacies, um, you know, it may seem academic, but when you see it in action, it's uh, it's really interesting how they can. Right. Yeah. Just turn it turn it around. Um, and you mentioned a little bit a few minutes ago about the 17 like counter moves that you offer in your book. Can you yeah. give a couple examples of those that someone might uh, employ when dealing with their parent? Well, I did mention a couple before, like suggesting they have a good reason or really acknowledging your contribution. Uh, if they go off on tangents, because there's a lot of related issues, so you find out that you talk about a lot of issues, but you never really come to any focus on any one of them. So what you do then is uh, there's something called the core conflictual relationship theme. What is the cultural rule that we're all ambivalent about? <laughs> okay, and I, I told you about how you might identify that by taking a little question about that. So you can comment on the bind that you're in, you, but when they're going off on a tangent, it's just going to be another example of the same core theme. So you use the tangent to bring you right back to what you wanted to talk about in the first place. Oh, that's another example of blah, blah, blah. And then you start talking about that. So you're back on the issue. 
so that's these are some of the the milder ones. Like I said, the more dysfunctional the family, the the more scary these things get, and they can get really scary. Definitely. And you talk about five strategies for initiating a constructive conversation. Can you talk about what those are? All right. Well, these are the things that I came up with in therapy. So let me uh, give a couple of them. One is to just start talking about your grandparents, <laughs> their experiences, and then slowly lead up to how, gee, that must have affected you this way. And then you start talking about how, oh, I wonder if that causes us to get into big fights about that issue. Now, again, some families are not going to go for it because they won't talk about the past. They won't talk about they were a victim of racism in the Old South or uh, what went on in Tsarist Russia if, if you were Jewish. They don't want to talk about that kind of stuff. But those are really essential things to kind of get to, but you may have to go back to that. The other thing is to just start out with the whole problem. Gee, we always get into a fight about this. What can we do about that? That's the most direct. And again, every family is, is somewhat different. And you got, you got to kind of give the, uh, the parent the benefit of the doubt. In other words, assume that there is a good reason why they're doing it, even though you can't see it. If they're kind of pushing you away, that distancing, hatefulness, you can express a wish for closeness with them. Now, they might just say, well, I don't want to be close to you, but most, most of the time they, they don't do that. It kind of softens them up a little bit, but that may or may uh, So those are the kind of initiating strategies that you can start to get into the main the main issue, which is what you want to discuss and how we can stop letting our confusion about this or ambivalence interfere with us having a better relationship, which is your goal. Right, right. Do you have any advice for someone who can who wants to start making some direct requests with that parent, setting some boundaries, um, and then what happens if the parent doesn't respect sort of that those wishes? Okay, assuming you were able to get to the uh, the main issue, people have a natural tendency to fall back into old patterns. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have strategies for what to do then, and basically it's to say we did it again. I wonder why that happened and how we can stop it from happening in the future. And again, you're part of it, so it's, it's your fault too. So we, not you, we kind of did it again. And people immediately kind of back, if you've had a good conversation about these issues, that brings them right back to it. Now, there's another big issue called when you, after you do this, called a game without end. That came from family systems therapy. Was You've asked for a change in the family rules, but you've always been acting that way before, so maybe you don't really mean it. Maybe you're being disingenuous. or So I'll do what she asked, but I'll do it in a way that you find annoying. So again, with gender issues, because that's really common now, the husband says, well, you want me to help with the housework, but I, I can never put the dishes in the right place. So he purposely does the dishes and puts the uh, dishes in the wrong place. And the wife gets on his case. You put her in the wrong place. And blah, blah, blah. See, you really didn't want to. Even though you know you're doing it in an obnoxious way, you immediately assume, see, she didn't really want to. Right. Me to do that because that's what it looked like. You have well, however many years you've been together as experienced as seeing her sort of treat that as her own personal kingdom. And now she says, I don't want to do that anymore. You go, well, maybe. A woman was complaining that her husband was working too much. And then he, uh, so or it wasn't working enough. That's it. So he took a job purposely when she uh, at night, so they would never be able to be together. And then when she complains about that, say, well, you didn't really want me to do that. Yeah, it's that kind of a thing. Yeah. And again, the way to out of that is to say, gee, I wonder if that happened because uh, you don't really trust this or something. In other words, you bring it up as like, we're all human. You know, we all have our flaws. We're all habitual creatures. It's no 
bad mark on you that it's not easy to do this stuff because it's, frankly, it's just not easy. Old habits die hard. I think that's a good place for us to stop to, unless you have any advice for somebody starting on this journey. Like you mentioned, it's not easy work. Do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Well, again, it's, uh, you know, you need to learn about some of this stuff. And obviously I'm appreciated if you learn it from me. Uh, so <laughs> I have a self-help book that, that kind of goes into uh, all these details. But uh, again, you may need a therapist help. That's again, no bad mark on you, but a lot of therapists are more than concerned in what your thoughts are irrational rather than why you think them in the first place. Mm -hmm. They basically used to say, well, we're just born irrational. That's not very, (laughs) they they say, well, you may have learned that in the family you grew up in, but it's not relevant now for that anymore. But that makes that never made any uh, sense for me. Or it happened when you were five and then it didn't matter after they, if they kept doing it after that. Sure. Yes, it does. <laughs> it doesn't stop when you hit 18. You know, it, it keeps going and going. Right. It's like the Energizer Buddy. It just doesn't stop until somebody kicks off. You know, and, and even then you've got, I've had people that replay conversations with their deceased parents in their heads every single day, and it always comes out exactly the same way, you know. So this stuff is really important. So, and, but my final message is you can do it. It's not impossible. Everybody is going to tell you it's impossible and that you're crazy for even trying to do it. (laughs) That's not true. This is doable. I've worked with families that are way worse than yours, and it's been done. Believe it or not, you may think your family's the worst. They're not. Every time I think of, I've heard everything that a parent can do to their own kids, boy, am I in for a shock. It's just amazing. Well, thank you so much, David, for your time, for your work. I think this is such important stuff that's going to help a lot of people, a lot of really good strategies in your work. So thank you very much for chatting with me today. Again, thanks for having me. Do you have a parent who is invalidating, critical, demanding, or hateful? In this important and much needed guide, you'll learn how to set boundaries, uncover the hidden motives behind your parents' behavior, put a stop to repetitive, hurtful interactions, and foster healthier relationships. There's no sugarcoating it. If you grew up with a parent who made you feel invalidated or unloved as a child, your pain is very real. In some cases, you may decide that you want to remove this parent from your life, and that's a valid choice. But for many people, dealing with a problem parent becomes a necessary part of life for whatever reason. If you're one of these people, this book can help. Written by a psychotherapist and expert in relationships, coping with critical, demanding, and dysfunctional parents will help you develop unique assertiveness strategies based on the characteristics of your own family dynamics. You'll learn powerful communication skills to help you build boundaries and put a stop to your parents' hurtful behavior. And most importantly, you'll learn to advocate for your own needs. If you've had it up to here with a parent who makes you feel as though you're not good enough, this invaluable guide can help you put an end to toxic interactions while maintaining peace in your family. Visit our website at www.newharbinger.com and use coupon code PODCAST25 to receive 25% off your entire order. New Harbinger Publications is an independent, employee-owned publisher of books on psychology, health, spirituality, and personal growth. For 50 years, our evidence-based self-help books and pioneering workbooks have helped readers make positive changes to improve mental health and well-being. Founded by psychologists Matthew McKay and Patrick Fanning, New Harbinger is proud to be an employee-owned company. Our books reflect our core values of integrity, sustainability, compassion, and trust. 
Written by leaders in the field and recommended by therapists worldwide, New Harbinger books are practical, accessible, and provide real tools for real change. Join the New Harbinger Clinicians Club, a free membership club exclusively for mental health professionals. Sign up today and you'll receive a special welcome gift, 35% off all professional books, free client resources, free eBooks throughout the year, access to private sales, a subscription to our quick tips for therapists, email program, and more visit newharbinger.com slash clinicians dash club for more information. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the show. And we hope you might share it with anyone who might benefit from the content. This podcast is not a substitute for counseling with a licensed provider.